Ladies and gents, my name is Brandon Stover. Welcome to the How to Solve Climate Change course from Plato University. Causes, systems, obstacles, solutions to this global challenge is what you're going to learn here today. When you're ready to learn more skills, join us for free at Plato.University. Let's get started with today's lesson. We'll have our expert guests briefly introduce themselves and their credentials for why they are able to speak to this topic. So my name is Eric Corey Freed. I'm an architect with 30 plus years experience and all of it on sustainability. Uh, unfortunately, buildings have a massive impact on the planet. And I've been spending my career trying to show people how to lessen that impact. Explain succinctly what the built environment was from first principles. At its essence, the built environment is theoretically any sort of in habitat, enclosure, work area touched by humanity. So I'm, I'm being deliberately vague here because I think one of the problems is that we've, we've so separated ourselves from the built environment, from the natural environment. And, and, I, and ultimately, I think that was a, a mistake. You know, some of my fondest childhood memories were spent building forts in the woods you know, stacking up rocks and, and branches and whatnot to make, you know, to make something truly integrated with nature. And, and my friends and I just kind of hanging out there. Is that the built environment? Yeah, by definition, it should be because we're, we're shaping and molding it, but we're using nature to do it. So I don't want to say the built environment is, is just buildings. That sounds too, sounds too, I don't know, forced. Why the separation between the built environment and nature? What role is it playing in our lives? The first answer that comes to mind is that we're very linear in our thinking and we think, okay, if that's nature, this must be the building. And if this is the building, that must be nature. And so I, I think we're kind of wired for binary thinking in a way, right? Nature is much more subtle and complex than that. The truth is that everything is the environment. And, and what's amazing is that, you know, as a young child, I had this inclination, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. I grew up in a very concrete jungly type place, but there was this Oddly enough, this golf course behind our house and the Bellakinwood golf course, if anybody wants to Google it. And it was just a very strange thing to have this, you know, to be in this dense urban city, but then to poke through this hole in this fence and suddenly have these rolling hills and, and nature. And as many times as, you know, we would kind of, you know, break a hole through the fence and sneak into the golf course, the golf course would then patch it up. And, and eventually I think they just gave up. So to me, I was, you know, I, I, my natural childhood inclination was to escape to nature. It was a, it was a respite. It was a retreat. And that, I think that might've been one of the early kind of experiences in my head that did this. But the truth is that now we have decades of studies showing us that if you connect people back to nature, it can improve patient recovery times. It can boost student performance and test scores and it can boost reading comprehension. It could increase collaboration in workspaces aid to employee retention. The, the wealth of benefits you get just by connecting the buildings back to nature, back to the natural environment through biophilic design and natural patterns and beautiful materials is vast. And it's an untapped potential that most buildings do not take advantage of. How does the built environment interact with the problem of climate change? So if you look at how we build our buildings, excavating, mining, harvesting all these raw materials and resources, then processing them and, and filtering them and heating them up and cooling them down and and molding them, all of that activity, right? The process of, of constructing, building, and then operating our, our buildings is responsible for about half of all the climate change emissions, all the global warming emissions that we produce. 
mostly because we use immense amounts of electricity and natural gas to heat and cool our buildings and light them and everything else, but also just the sheer amount of effort that goes into making concrete or steel. And so if we're going to solve for climate change, if we're really going to look at trying to keep the the global temperature below that 1.5 degrees of warming, which some say is already out of reach, but to keep it in some way hospitable for life on earth, we have to change how we build our buildings. And the sad part is that we've known this now in some, you know, we've really, really known it for 30 years, but in some sense, we've known it for over a hundred years because the science of, of climate and greenhouse gas and, you know, the greenhouse effect dates back to the 1860s. Not to nerd out here, but this is kind of exciting because on the one hand, a lot of the assumptions that we had around buildings are no longer true. You know, we've been building buildings, if you really think about it, we've been building buildings the same way for kind of 200 years now, right? Little sticks of wood, little sticks of metal, stacking blocks on top of each other. Fundamentally, we haven't really changed the technology that much. And so a lot of the assumptions that we used in the early part of the 20th century around heating and cooling and storms is now completely out of date. The general public doesn't know this, but everybody in the industry does in that ASHRAE, which is all the mechanical engineers in the country. They, they've been slowly changing their standards of what constitutes each climate zone because what, you know, what used to be a hundred year flood is now a five year flood, right? What used to be a hundred year storm is now like a five year storm. By the way, a five year storm isn't a storm that happens every five years. It just means that in any year, there's a 20% chance of it happening. They had a one in 1000 year storm in the Midwest last year in 2022. They got five of them in one year. What do you call it then? At that point, what do you call it if you're getting 5,000-year storms hitting the Midwest in one summer? Is that, I don't even know what to call it. Is that just, is that just the new normal? Is that what it is? So, so it's been affecting how we design our buildings because we've been kind of questioning a lot of those assumptions, which has been great because we, we should have been doing that all along. You know, We're designing hospitals in the Midwest where we're designing them for tornadoes. Because they had, you know, the likelihood of tornadoes and hurricanes and those wind forces kind of sucking off the facade of the building is now much more likely. We're doing a hospital in in, um, Miami Beach. And on our first analysis of it, we realized that this site is going to be 14 feet underwater by mid-century. So what did the client do? Well, they raised the site by five feet and then built a five-foot wall. It's not the full 14 feet, but it, it buys them time. We have another site in San Francisco. It's going to be 10.2 feet underwater by mid-century. So it caused us to kind of rethink where we're locating the, you know, the, the project. So this level of adaptation and resiliency, which has always been, you know, obviously part of any kind of bit building now, because all the, all these assumptions are now wrong. It's forcing us to really question this and it's informing our decision making and how we build these buildings. I had a follow up question. I'm thinking about the effects of climate change on the built environment because we have specific standards for uh, materials within like a certain temperature range because materials expand and contract. Is there a possibility of our current buildings eroding or falling apart more quickly or not being able to be structurally sound because of an increased temperature range? It's a great question. That's a very, are you a scientist? You must be a scientist in yours. I used actually used to be an architect. Oh, there you go. Okay. So what Brandon's referring to is that all materials have a a coefficient of what we call expansion and contraction. And some materials expand or contract more based on humidity or in temperature. You know, if you take a piece of aluminum, let's say, and you make it cold, you put it outside in the winter, it shrinks. 
And if you take that same exact piece of aluminum and put it in the sun on a warm day, it expands. And aluminum is notorious for expanding a lot. And you might be thinking, well, why, why is that a big deal? Well, most of the glass curtain walls in most buildings are aluminum and glass. And so you've got two different materials, aluminum and glass, both with different expansions of coefficients of expansion and contraction, the aluminum much more. So couldn't theoretically, if we designed a, you know, if we designed, let's say a skyscraper in Atlanta and we designed it, assuming it never gets hotter than 95 degrees and now it starts to go up to 110, what could that mean? Could the skin pop off? And the answer is, yeah. I mean, you know, I I don't want to freak anybody out, but of course, yeah, of course it's possible. Everything's possible. Generally, we design these things, you know, we don't design them to the bare minimum. So I'd like to think that expansion contraction is not the issue. I think the bigger issue would be like the, you know, the, the ones we're seeing more often is flooding in places that historically never flooded or category five hurricanes or tornadoes in places that never got higher than a, you know, cat two or cat three. I think those kind of forces you'll probably will affect the building more than, than expansion contraction, but certainly all that expansion contraction of any material starts to wear it out quicker. And so in metals, it, it get, leads to what we call fatigue. In wood, it leads to splintering and cracking. In concrete, it leads to spalling and, you know, and seepage and the gross things. So yeah, it could just, you know, could just age all of our building materials, you know, much more than we even anticipated. So it's, it's, it's bad all around. Over the years, I've done work with NASA and I just finished a thing with them and I, I had the opportunity to talk with a lot of their Earth observ- Observatory folks, like the folks that literally just stare at the data all day. And I said, okay, well, how, what are you really, how are you really feeling? Because I know, you know, I know what the public press releases say and what the statements say, and they always try to be very measured and not create panic. But they're all panicking. I mean, they're all freaked out. They, you know, they don't want to say that, but I'll say it because it freaked me out to talk to them about it. We don't even fully get how bad it's going to be because so many of the assumptions were based on this this climate pathway this called called RCP 8.5 and basically the assumption was that okay if we do business as usual and don't do anything this is what we expect will happen but surely that'll never be surely humanity will come to its senses long before that and so they had these other pathways that they assumed would happen and they're not happening and so basically it's the worst case scenario and it's we don't even understand the compounding effects of all this stuff you know, 2023 is not over, but it will be one of the five, if not one of the two hottest years on record. It's how do we know that? Well, because of the performance we've already seen. In fact, that's something that we just say now is that the last eight years are the, have been the hottest years on record. And that's just going to be true forevermore. How might we positively influence the built environment to help solve climate change? Right now in my head, you know, this is 30, 35 years of me thinking about it. I think right now, my answer today will be different than what it probably will be next year. But right now in my head, the way, the way I think about it is in terms of five buckets. The first bucket is, okay, if it takes a lot of energy just to make stuff like concrete and steel and aluminum and glass, that's, that's what we call the upfront carbon or the embodied carbon. So number one would be finding materials that don't emit as much carbon in making of them. So that's why you've seen a lot of pushing for engineered wood like mass timber because they zero carbon technically. Second option is the operational carbon, what it takes to run the building. So once the building's built, how much energy is it going to use? Is that energy made from electricity? Is that electricity coming from renewable places like the sun and the wind? Or is it burning coal to make it? How much natural gas are you still using in that building? Because now you're, now you're still burning stuff. Can you kind of fully electrify the building 
and fully make it powered by renewable sources. That's the goal with the operational energy. And if you're going to do that, then also look at how to make the building as efficient as possible. So that way you're not, you know, just wasting your money heating and cooling it, but really finding ways to make a nice tight skin or envelope around it. So that way all the money you do use heating it up kind of stays in there. That'd be bucket number two. Bucket number three to me would be looking at uh, the health. It surprises most people when they realize that most buildings are horribly unhealthy. (laughs) In fact, you can put any toxic material you want into a building except for asbestos and lead paint, right? Those are banned in the 70s through the Toxic Substances Control Act. But, you know, take the typical, I don't know, typical school, right? A kid spends, you know, one-fifth of their time, 20%. 20% of the country is in a school building at any time. They spend, you know, eight hours a day in there. It's just a lot of exposure. And the typical school has, you know, volatile organic compounds in the paints, formaldehyde in the tiles and the adhesives, known phthalates, known endocrine disruptors, things that could stunt their growth, that could affect their brain development, that could affect their, their puberty development, you know, known carcinogens that we're knowingly just putting into buildings because why? Because they're cheap because that's what we've always used, because there's no law banning it. So one of the things that I strongly advocate for is, is uh, not putting any cancer-causing chemicals in a building at all, what we call chemicals of concern. And now, of course, we, ha- we know so much more about the materials and chemicals that we're using in these buildings because manufacturers have been much more transparent about showing us what's in their products. And they've been taking great inroads to, to lessen those chemicals of concern. But, you know, a lot, of, a lot of my time is spent designing hospitals or cancer centers. And so one of the questions that I'll pose to my clients is, hey, I've got a crazy, wacky idea. What if we didn't put, you know, cancer-causing chemicals in the cancer center, you know, where the cancer patients are? Wouldn't that be smart, everybody? And I, like, I ham it up like that to the clients, but I'm doing it to effect because to me, it's just so absurd. Wait, we're designing, we're designing children's hospitals. We're, we have an expertise in children's hospitals. And I love working on children's hospitals because every, everybody who works at the children's hospital are just, they know they're on a, this noble mission, right? They know that they're doing the good, but they also have a very stressful job, as you can imagine. And so I'll say to them, hey, I've got a wacky idea. Why don't we not put, you know, carcinogens where the sick children are? Wouldn't that be smart? And everybody's like, yeah, let's do that. I'm like, okay, well, why aren't we? <laughs> and I, I really push it to absurd levels because I, I need people to see how absurd it is. The, the traditional typical building is filled with at least 18,000 known carcinogenic chemicals. Everybody's house is filled with thousands of these things. And by the way, the cleaning products that we use to clean our houses aren't much better. So we're, no, we're unknowingly filling our building with, with these toxins. And we know too much to, to remain in the dark about it. Anybody who's in my line of work, you know, sustainability person, in this world, it's funny because whenever we get together, we all kind of gripe and complain about the same stuff. But basically, I find myself very often, I'm in a room full of people that have done the same thing over and over and over again, right? They built, they built this school or they built the hospital and they, they built essentially the same thing over and over again. And they're really good at it, right? They know, where the, they know where the breakdowns could be. They know where the costs could go up. They know how to control those things. They're really good at their job. And I'm coming in to say, hey, let's throw all that out the window. Let's do something completely batty and different. And that freaks people out. And I'm very mindful of that. And I think anybody in sustainability is essentially saying, hey, let's take away decades of tradition and question it a little bit and find a better way. And so how do you do that? 
we don't come charging in saying everything that you're doing is stupid, right? That's that doesn't work. That makes that immediately alienates everybody in the room. You also don't come in and, and start bragging. Well, I've got a better way. Instead, what you do is like it's as Simon Sinek says, you start with the why. So when I go into these rooms, I'm not selling them on sustainability at all. I'm selling them on the benefits and outcomes that sustainability brings them. That's what I start with. I listen to their pain points. I ask them a bunch of questions. I ask them, what are your priorities? What are your preferences? What keeps you up at night? It's a big question I get. And then based on that, I'll make recommendations of, do you realize that we could boost retail retail sales in your mall, or we could boost student performance in your school, or we could boost patient recovery outcomes? And they might even say, well, oh, how do do you do that? Well, I'm going to use sustainability and all of the tools in my designer toolkit to do that. But these are the outcomes that are important to you. So let's design toward those outcomes. So I don't need to sell them on sustainability. I don't want to sell them on sustainability. They don't need to be as passionate about sustainability as I am. I'm a dork, right? I, they, I don't need them as dorky as me. I just need them on board with, are these the right outcomes? Are these the things that are important to you? Help me figure out those outcomes. And then we'll find a way to get there. And so, you know, like the cancer-causing chemicals discussion is, is your goal to be the healthiest place for patients to come? Is your, bol- is your goal to, to create an institute of learning that, that lifts the spirit and the mind? And the answer is yes, then okay, well, then I'm going to use sustainability to help you get there. I don't want them necessarily on board with sustainability in that, you know, they're as nerdy as I am. They don't need to be. They have their business. They're good at it. They're hiring, hiring us for our expertise. So I'm just, I think I'm, I'm after all these years, I'm, I'm just kind of trusting in that. So where was I? Bucket number three was health. Bucket number four is one that gets overlooked all the time too, and that's water. Water is... Water is kind of fascinating because on the one hand, it's, it's also a climate change issue, right? It takes a lot of energy to process, pump, filter, and deliver the water that we take for granted every day, right? We think we just turn a spigot and the water comes out, but it takes a lot of energy to do that. But also, the way the earth is designed, all the, all the fresh water on the earth is all the fresh water that's ever been on the earth. We don't create new water. We don't import water from space. All the water on the planet is all the water that's ever been on the planet. So, you know, the, I'd like to think that the water that I'm sipping in my glass here, I'd like to think that, you know, in the past it was one, you know, one sipped by, I don't know, Thomas Jefferson or somebody, right? Or, or maybe romantically it rained down on the Eiffel Tower or something really beautiful. All the water on the planet, all the water that it's ever been on the planet. 1% of that water is fresh drinking water for us to use. Most of it is frozen, although not for much longer in the polar ice caps or stuck in the ocean and undrinkable. So we have a very limited supply and I don't think people realize how limited it is. And now humans have spent the last 200 years polluting a lot of this fresh water. So water is a crisis and they don't even realize that. And climate change is, of course, exacerbating that and making it worse with droughts and wildfires and floods and you know too much water in one spot and not enough water in another. So that's bucket number four. And then bucket number five is waste. Waste is this kind of ticking time bomb and 25% of all landfills are made of construction waste. So buildings are really largely responsible. And so last year I wrote a book on the circular economy, which is a process of changing that paradigm from kind of take, make, and waste what we've been doing, this very linear approach of we're just going to take stuff and we'll use it for a while and we throw it away. Changing that take, make, waste approach to what I call a harvest, make, and remake over and over and over again kind of bending those loops into what we call a circular economy. It's very popular in Europe, not so popular in the US. And, and by writing the book, my, my hope was that we would kind of help change that. 
So I think you're all going to hear a lot more about the circular economy in the coming years. But those are the five buckets, embodied energy and carbon, operational energy and carbon, healthy materials, water, and then headed towards zero waste. And trying to really get to zero for all five of those buckets would be a great thing. What are the best resources to learn more about the built environment in relation to climate change? Well, how, how, I guess it depends on how far down the rabbit hole one wants to go. To me, the absolute, the, the best book to start with is called Drawdown by Paul Hawken. In fact, anything written by Paul Hawken is probably a good thing to read. Paul, Paul is a wonderful human, so smart. Every time he speaks, I learn, I learn more and more. But he started with a book years and years ago called Natural Capitalism that he wrote with Amory and Hunter Lovins, which is also a great read. But his recent book, Drawdown, is, it was a brilliant idea. He basically said, hey, I have a crazy idea. What if we did the math to figure out what each thing is contributing to climate change and then kind of put them in order? And so when the book came out, and I think it came out in 2015 or 2016, right around there, one of the top things that came up was providing women access to education and health. As like, that would be, that would be a solution to solve climate change. It kind of shocked everybody. But he did the math and shows how it works. One of the other ones was the refrigerants that we use to keep things cool, especially for food and buildings, have a massive impact on climate change. And switching out those refrigerants to something else could really, could really cut our emissions. And so ever since the book came out, the entire building industry is now suddenly fixated on how do we fix our refrigerants? And so there's been more work done on refrigerants in the last five years than there has in probably the 30 years that preceded it. So it's a great book. It's very easy to read. It'll, what I like about it is that it's kind of fueled with hope too, because it's really solutions-based. So it's a way to not get super depressed right away. Another great book, and this is kind of a classic, is by Ray Anderson. Ray Anderson was the, was the founder of Interface Carpet, and he passed away, unfortunately. But he has a book called Mid-Course Correction, because basically when he was in his 50s, he kind of got bit by the sustainability bug. And he completely converted his company over to what, what they call Climbing Mount Sustainability. And the book chronicles the story of kind of what happened and how he, he did it. There's, I mean, there's a lot of amazing books like that. But those would be the two that I would like if you just want to start. And then maybe a third one just to throw in for fun, other than my own books, would be uh, Cradle to Cradle by, by William McDonough and Michael Brongart, which kind of talks about this circular economy approach in a very interesting way. Instead of taking a material from cradle to death, you know, birth to death, Cradle to Cradle kind of is this idea of a truly circular economy. Right now, you're speaking to passionate students who want to actually solve problems like these. What top three skills should they study so that they actually have the ability to do so? Oh, that's a great question. I do this exercise with, I do it with my grad students. I started doing it with my grad students. Now I do it with any student that reaches out to me because there's a lot of them. And, and so I get students from all over the country, sometimes the world that say, I want to be part of this. What do I do? And, and the, the advice that I give them is, well, just start. Don't wait. So your question about what skills, one would be just having enough gumption to just start going. Number, number two would be however you can present yourself or present your ideas, whether it's through writing or speaking or singing or dance or whatever, whatever your format is, doesn't matter. Public speaking, whatever, whatever you find can, can convey your idea to, to a large group of people, do it. So, you know, you don't have to be a great public speaker if you're a good writer. You don't have to be a great writer if you're a good graphic designer. You can make infographics, right? But whatever, find whatever your medium is that you like and start sharing your ideas. And then number three is, is what I call filtering. 
you know, I think of my, my purpose on in life, and I think you feel this way a little too, but my purpose in life is to take these complex ideas, some of, some of which are very disparate and seemingly disconnected, and kind of pull them all together and put them into a format that people can understand. I think a large, a large portion of you know, what I've been doing as an architect, what I've been doing writing these 12 books over the years and speaking all over the world, that's, it's really just me being a filter of like, hey guys, this is important, or hey guys, I'm excited about this, and here's why you should be too. And just taking that information and making it palatable. And what I love is, you know, you know, I'll be at a, a conference or something and someone will come up to me and say, oh my God, I heard you speak 12 years ago. And I go, oh yeah, how have you been? Like, I don't remember. But uh, you spoke, you spoke in, in my, at my school 12 years ago and you had this analogy about concrete and I still use it to this day. To me, that shows that that idea of filtering works, that I gave them something that took these complex ideas and made it very understandable to them. So that would be my advice to, to anybody is, is really try to hone those three skills. Any final recommendations for the audience? One of the things that I do with students when they talk to me is I go, look, do you have, do you have a problem around you that drives you crazy? Some sort of sustainability problem. Maybe it's in your house. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's on your campus. Maybe it's in your city. Maybe it's in your state. Maybe it's a global problem. But whatever it is, do you have a problem that drives you nuts? And they always all say, yes, of course. I go, okay. Could you, right now, with no further schooling, could you potentially brainstorm solutions to that problem that you identified? And that's, this is where they start to like fall apart. They go, well, I've never done that before. I go, yes, yes, yes. But what if I had a gun to your head? Could you come up with solutions to the problem that you identified? And they go, well, yeah, if you had a gun to my head. I go, okay. Could you then take the solutions that you developed to the problem that you identified, could you find a way to package that solution in a way that people could understand it? Again, gun to your head, could you do it right now with no further training, no further schooling, no nothing, just right now, take these solutions and package them in a way that people could understand it? And they go, yeah, yeah, I think I could do that. Okay. Could you then deliver that package of your explanation of your solution to the problem that you identified? Could you deliver that in a way that has passion and enthusiasm so it gets other people excited? Could you do that today? Again, gun to your head. Could you do that today with no further schooling, no further training? And this is where, well, I've never, I don't know, I wouldn't be very good at it, but I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you were forced to, could you? And they said, well, yes, I think I could. I said, okay, then let's recap. Right now, without any budget, Without any further schooling, without any further training, without an accreditation, right now, given your current amount of knowledge and, and schooling, you can identify problems that need to be solved, brainstorm potential solutions to that problem, package it in a way that people can understand it, and then present that in a way that gets people excited. You can do all of those amazing things right now. So my question for you is, why aren't you? What are you waiting for? What's holding you back? And that leads to an interesting discussion because it's usually about fear or insecurity or I've never done it before. What if I look stupid? And so I can address each of those things to them. But it's amazing because I, if I start the conversation with them and show them how they have this abundance of skill that they're not even aware of that they're sitting on, they could start to enact positive change immediately. They don't need to go to grad school. I mean, unless they want to. They don't need to get some you know, accreditation unless they want to. They have the power within them to make change now. And I think that's the probably biggest lesson that I can impart to anybody would be just start, just go. The world is a mess. Pick a problem and run towards it. And who cares if you don't have it perfect? 
because very quickly you'll get up to speed on it. But just, just go. We may not all be architects. However, one way we could apply the skills learned in this lesson is by assessing our own homes. Conduct a simple energy assessment of your living space. Identify areas where energy may be wasted, such as drafty windows or poor insulation materials creating a poor thermal envelope. Create a checklist of potential energy-saving upgrades and research ways to make your living space more energy-efficient. As Eric mentioned, don't forget about health and look for materials that are not only sustainable, but better for your health as well. Thank you for taking the How to Solve Climate Change course. If you want to learn the skills to solve this global challenge, join us for free at Plato.University for exclusive content, extra resources, and actionable exercises with every lesson. This course was produced by Plato University, where students turn passions into purpose and learn skills to change the world. Learn more at Plato.University.